Good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together, as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you gave and what you did for us in your Son to do what we could not do for ourselves. And that we come here and every week when we take the Lord's Supper, it is to remember what you did, what our Lord Jesus did for us. Thank you for filling in where we could not. Thank you for saving us and reminding us that it took your death to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Last time in the first half of uh, chapter 11, we considered Paul's instruction regarding a symbol that pictured God's design for authority, for headship and submission in his spiritual household. That symbol takes the form of head covering for women and head uncovering for men whenever praying or prophesying. Now we talked a lot last time about the connection between the symbol and the substance to which the symbol points. The purpose of every God-ordained symbol or ceremony in both testaments of the Bible is to make us mindful of the substance. The symbol is not the substance. The symbol is a pointer. The substance is the far greater reality. Now, based on some of the conversations I've had since last Sunday, which I anticipated, they were good conversations, I just want to clarify for a moment that a legalistic enforcement of a God-ordained symbol will inevitably cause you or someone else at some point to violate the substance. 
Let me say that again. A legalistic enforcement of a God-ordained symbol will at some point cause you or someone else to violate the substance. If you're a construction worker and your employer requires you to wear a helmet all day on the job site because OSHA requires that of him, and you know that God says pray without ceasing, that doesn't mean that you get to yank your helmet off at various points during the day on the job site so that you can pray. It also doesn't mean that you don't pray until you're done with the day. Okay? We need, to, we need to examine the heart of God that he presents in his word and understand his priorities. And we'll, it's, it's really not rocket science to understand that the symbol can't overwhelm the character of God and the heart of God, and it can't, it can't undo any aspect of the Christian life that God commands. Now, that also does not mean that the symbol is unimportant. It doesn't mean we get to just dispense with symbols that are inconvenient. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6 says that God made us sufficient as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's a very forceful statement. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Anytime that you or I reduce godliness to rigorously keeping rules instead of loving and honoring God and loving our neighbor, then we move from that which gives life to that which produces death. And there was some really good discussion in the worship this morning. My brother Joe really pointed us in the right direction there that law-keeping doesn't cut it. The only acceptability, the only approval that we have in the eyes of our perfectly holy God is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not because of us. So we can't make the observance of any, any practice on this earth as if it somehow <laughs> measures up to what Jesus did. Now, we need to realize that even though honoring the substance to which a God-ordained symbol points uh, even though that means that we can't always observe the symbol, it does not mean that the symbol is unimportant. It doesn't mean we get to set it aside. Whenever we can, we avail ourselves of the symbol as a reminder to ourselves and to others of God's intention, of God's heart. And when God graciously tells us that we need a reminder... We don't get to say to God, I don't need it. And, and I don't, again, I, I have no desire to be legalistic. I said last week, I'm not changing any policies about head covering in this church. Whatever the reminder is, if God gave it to us, guys, we need to think about it. We need to prayerfully determine how we go about handling it. Uh, and we need to recognize that God gives us reminders. He gives us physical, tangible, tasteable hearable memorials because we need to be reminded. One of the most foundational truths of, uh, of living as creatures of our Creator is that our Creator gets to tell us what we need, right? The world says, no, He doesn't. But we, the children of God, say, yes, He does. He gets to tell us what we need. All right, so the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 focused on a symbol that points to a far greater substance, that 
Same thing is true of the second half of chapter 11. Our passage this morning, chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, is a stern warning to the church at Corinth and to us. Some of the Corinthian saints were treating a sacred Christ-ordained observance as common, as trivial. They were robbing the remembrance of the remembering. And they were, they were, in fact, going much further than that, they were treating that remembrance as an opportunity for self-indulgent sin. That remembrance is the Lord's Supper. The word that means uh, gather together or assemble together occurs five times in this one passage. Twice in the first two verses, twice in the last two verses, and once in between toward the beginning. That same word is used twice again in chapter 14, meaning the same thing. I believe that everything we find from 1 Corinthians 11:17 through the end of chapter 14 applies to what we do when we gather together in the formal assembly of the church, which is what we do here on Sunday mornings. Like the head coverings that Paul addressed in the first part of this chapter, the Lord's table is a symbol. Unlike the head coverings, <laughs> this symbol was instituted directly by Jesus at the first Lord's Supper with his disciples the evening before he went to the cross to pay the debt of our sin. Not all symbols, not all God-given symbols are created equal. This one comes with a forceful and fearsome warning that is attached to no other remembrance or ceremony in the New Testament, including baptism. And that should get our attention. Paul immediately begins this passage in verse 17 with a rebuke against the Corinthian saints. He says they were coming together for the worse and not for the better. <laughs> they were tearing the church of Jesus Christ down instead of building it up. And that was reflected in the fact that there were divisions arising in that community of saints in Corinth. There were factions that had arisen in that local flock of God. Now, surprisingly, Paul points out here that God has, a, God has a constructive purpose in allowing such factions. And that constructive purpose is to smoke out or make evident who is approved and who is not. Now, I find no justification whatsoever in this passage to conclude, as some have, that Paul is using the word approved as a synonym for saved. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he uses that same word, approved, when he says to his beloved spiritual son, Timothy, that he had left in charge of the church at Ephesus, he says, be diligent, work hard to present yourself approved to God as a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul isn't questioning the salvation of Timothy. He's pointing out to Timothy that handling the word of God in a manner that is useful, that is approved by God, requires hard work. As we'll see at the end of this morning's passage, the judgment that God says he will dispense upon Christians who trivialize or corrupt the observance of the Lord's table 
is explicitly not judgment unto eternal condemnation, but is instead painful discipline from the hand of our faithful Heavenly Father. We'll come to that later. Nonetheless, <laughs> beloved, it would be foolish for us to conclude that because the eternal destiny of a child of God is not in peril for violating Paul's warning here, that means we have no cause for very real fear of the consequence of neglecting or ignoring that warning. God is, in the most literal sense of the words, deadly serious about the failure that Paul is correcting here. And we must assign the same importance to it that God does. In verses 20 through 34, Paul presents the indictment, the standard, and the warning that apply to the Lord's Supper. The indictment, the standard, and the warning. We start with the indictment, verses 20 to 22. Verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you meet together, it's the same word he's used, he uses multiple times, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying it should be, but it isn't. He's saying that when the Corinthian saints gathered together as a local body, they were not doing so for the purpose that God intended. And that purpose was to share the Lord's table. Even though they clearly partook of the elements of the Lord's Supper after a fashion when they came together, some among them were far too distracted by other self-indulgent priorities to actually have the Lord's Supper in focus at all. The specific failure that Paul identifies here has a very strong connection to his earlier stern rebuke against the Corinthians for their participation in pagan sacrificial feasts. There was a bleed over from that practice to their practice of the Lord's table. In chapter 10, Paul commanded the Corinthians not to repeat the idolatrous practices that the Israelites had committed at the foot of Mount Sinai in what we know as the golden calf incident. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. They sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. While Moses was at the top of Mount Sinai receiving the law of God from God, the Israelites at the foot of the mountain commissioned Aaron to fashion a golden calf out of the gold that God had given to Israel as the spoils of a victory that they didn't really win. God won it for them. They didn't even have a sword to wield in that war. They were shepherds and slaves. But they left Egypt with the spoils of, of, of a victory. And they took those spoils and they made an idol and they called it Yahweh. And they worshipped him and they said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. While God was, was manifesting his glory in a cloud at the top of the mountain and talking to, to Moses and graciously giving them the law. But the Israelites didn't stop with the abominable act of creating an image and worshipping it. They threw a wild party at the foot of that mountain filled with gluttony, drunkenness, and shameless sexual self-indulgence. Now, 
in Paul's day, some of the Corinthian believers were indulging in some of those same shamelessly self-serving practices during what was supposed to be the observance of the Lord's Supper. How do you think the brothers and sisters in this section of the auditorium would have responded if when the usher walked over to me with the plate full of, of the broken bread, if I had just taken that and set it in my lap and started stuffing my face with all that bread? And then after he picked up the empty tray, then he brought the tray full of the, of the juice and all the little cups, and I just set that in my lap and I drank every single cup because I was thirsty from all that bread. In the Corinthian church of Paul's day, some of the believers, especially the wealthier and more influential among them, were grabbing up large portions of the bread and wine that had been set out for the Lord's table. They were filling their stomachs and they were making themselves drunk before most of the gathered saints had even had an opportunity to receive any of the elements, especially the poorer ones. In verse 22, Paul expresses his outrage over such unloving and uncaring observance of such a sacred event. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. In verses 23 to 26, Paul moves from the indictment to the standard. He, he lays out for us how the Lord's table should be observed. His words here constitute what very much appears to be a liturgy, a script for the church in observing the Lord's table. And as we would expect, that liturgy duplicates a whole lot of what Jesus said in, in the Gospels when the first Lord's Supper occurred. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. Paul says here, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim a past event until a future event happens. The bread represents the body of Jesus that was given for us. The fact that the bread is unleavened represents to us the perfect purity of the sacrifice that God provided for our sin. The cup represents the blood of Jesus, the life of our Lord poured out to pay the eternal debt that we, every one of us, owed to God because of our sin. Now, the Lord's Supper is a vivid picture of us receiving into ourselves, taking into ourselves the life that Jesus laid down for us at the cross. His life has become our life. The symbols, the bread and the cup, they don't accomplish that giving and receiving of eternal life. They 
picture and remember and proclaim what Jesus already accomplished at the cross and what has happened in the life of every believer, every person who has put their faith in Jesus. Now bear in mind that those who first ate the Lord's Supper with Jesus had been raised up from birth as Jews believing rightly that under the law of Moses they were prohibited from consuming the blood of any sacrifice precisely because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Life belongs to God. Genesis chapter 9. No man was permitted to take the life of any of God's creatures into himself. But now Jesus instituted an observance that required exactly that. It it pictured the taking of another man's life into ourselves. The life that the life giver laid down so that he might give his life to us who were lost and dead in our sin. Jesus' words in John chapter 6 speak magnificently of this beautiful mystery of sinful men and women taking into ourselves the life of the giver of life that he laid down for our sakes. John 6 verse 53, Jesus said to them, and by the way, this caused his multitude of followers to turn into a, a tiny little group of followers. This statement. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate. He who eats this bread will live forever. What a statement. What a complete reversal of everything that the, that the Jewish hearers of these statements had ever understood and ever heard. There's only one life, only one life that comes out from outside of us that we get to take it into ourselves, and that's the life of the life giver, of the owner of life, the possessor of life, the source of life. Here in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not only does the Lord's table proclaim the Lord's substitutionary death in our place, it also proclaims his imminent return to claim his bride, his church, as his own forever. Having presented the practice and significance of the Lord's Supper, Paul returns in verses 27 to 34 to his stern rebuke with which he began this passage. And he moves from indictment to warning. His words in verse 27 can only be called ominous, fearsome. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I'm not sure what exactly it means to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but I know that I don't want to have to answer to God for that sin. 
Paul's words draw my mind irresistibly to two other ominous indictments, both in the book of Hebrews, that the writer of Hebrews leveled against Jewish Christians who were turning back from the grace of the gospel to law-keeping, which was, it was the, the theme of our worship this morning, that you don't get to do that. If it is of law, it is not of grace. They were turning back from the grace of God in Jesus Christ to the keeping of Jewish law because they were convinced that somehow doing so would stack the deck in their favor in the eyes of God. Like Joe said, he struggled with for a time in his life. Paul's words are, again, they point me back to Hebrews, or forward to Hebrews. Hebrews 6 verse 6 says of, of these duplicitous Christians who are trying to straddle the fence between grace and law, says they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and they put Him to open shame. Hebrews 10.29 says that the one who by turning back to law keeping goes on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as, as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. If you look at the, writers, at the writer of Hebrews' own use of the word sanctified in that same chapter just a little earlier, he says we are, that by the offering of Jesus Christ we are sanctified once for all. Those fearsome indictments don't sound all that much different to me than declaring somebody to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, for a host of reasons that I'll be happy to discuss with any of you offline, I am convinced that both of those forceful warnings I just cited portions of from Hebrews are directed to redeemed Christians, not to unbelievers who are mixed in with redeemed Christians. That is indisputably the case in this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, because God says it is. He's talking to Christians. I'm going to give you my take on the exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Some of you are going to disagree with my understanding of this verse, but probably fewer of you than disagreed with me last week when I talked about head cover. Over the years, many brothers whom I dearly love and greatly respect have presented that exhortation from verse 28 as if it requires us to bring to mind any and all sins that we can come up with that we haven't confessed and to confess them as a prerequisite for participating in the Lord's Supper. Often a brother will call for a period of silence before the elements are passed, perhaps a few minutes for all of us to spend time taking stock and confessing any known sins. Now, while I understand how someone might come to that approach from verse 28, I believe that Paul's exhortation here is much more focused than that. I believe Paul is saying, before you participate in the Lord's table, take stock of the value that you assign to it. Take stock of the worth that you place on that which this Christ-ordained remembrance remembers so that you don't treat the sacred as trivial. Again, the actual problem that Paul is addressing here is that some of the Corinthian saints were treating the Lord's table the same way they treated the pagan sacrificial feasts. As if it was yet another opportunity for gluttony, for drunkenness, for arrogant self 
service at the expense of others. He's telling those saints, if they don't stop in their tracks and radically adjust their approach to this sacred meal, they will incur fierce, harsh judgment from God. I can't speak for you, but if I attempted to smoke out and confess every unconfessed sin I've committed even in the last 24 hours, it would take more than a few minutes. Paul's exhortation here in 1 Corinthians 11.28 is a call to stop and prayerfully, thoughtfully take stock of whether you are treating this Christ-ordained symbol in a manner that rightly honors the substance to which it points. And beloved, that substance is the very gift of Christ's life poured out to deliver you and me out of eternal death into eternal life. There is nothing more valuable than the blood of Christ. The judgment that Paul says God will dispense toward us if we fail to rightly judge our own approach to the Lord's Supper is explicitly not judgment to eternal condemnation. In fact, Paul says, he says this judgment that he's talking about here actually guarantees the opposite. He says that those who are judged in this way by God will not be condemned along with the world. In fact, the judgment is to keep them from being condemned along with the world. Listen again to verses 29 to 32. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you were weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. And then verse 32, please listen. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Got it? According to verse 30, the punishment that came upon these saints from the hand of God took the form of weakness for some, sickness for others, and for still others whose violation of the sanctity of the, the observance was most severe, it took the form of physical death. God shortened their lives. You and I need to know, Paul is saying here in verse 32, verse 32 about the judgment. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. God judges his redeemed people. I, when I was a young Christian, I believed that that word judgment didn't even apply to Christians. It does. In 1 Peter, Peter says that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. God judges his own redeemed. He punishes our willful dishonor and disobedience. The fatherly discipline that Hebrews 12 likens to a scourging is always sorrowful for the moment. But in the end, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness and it makes us to share in God's holiness. Beloved, God intends you and me to know this with certainty. The judgment that we who believe in Jesus received from the hand of God this side of glory will never be judgment for condemnation. Never. It will always be judgment for discipline intended by God to correct, renew, and restore. The same was actually true of God's dealings with Israel as a nation under the old covenant that is true of God's dealings with His church and with every individual Christian under the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, God said to wayward and rebellious Judah, 
whom he was about to send into 70 years of, of captivity in Babylon. He said, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. <laughs> for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, but I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you. I will punish you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. In the three chapters of Jeremiah that immediately follow that one, God declares His intention that at the end of that temporary judgment against Judah and Israel, He would turn the calamity that He had brought upon His people into blessed relationship and fellowship with Himself beyond anything they had ever known or imagined, and He would keep them in that relationship and fellowship forever. God intends for you and me to know without a doubt that His judgments against His church, His redeemed children, will never be for condemnation. In John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. And that word means condemning judgment. But as already crossed over out of death into life. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Alright, so the fact that judgment doesn't condemn us eternally does not mean that it's not fearsome judgment. Parents, your kids are supposed to be afraid of the punishment that you will, will dispense upon them. And they're also supposed to know that you're not going to kill them. Why do we think that the only punishment that will come from the hand of God that we should pay any attention to is, is being told that we were never His children and we're headed to hell? No, God is a very effective disciplinarian. He, he's a perfect father and He knows exactly what He's doing. And you know what? His discipline hurts. He calls it a scourging. Google a Roman scourge. Look at, what it, look at what that is. All right. As we finish up this morning, I want to draw your attention to two sacred meals. I want to make a connection between Old and New Testament. There are many Old Testament themes that are, that are played out and fulfilled in our observance of the Lord's table. But I want, to, I want to just point a few things out here. I want us to look at two sacred meals, two pictures of fellowship accomplished, and two fearsome warnings. One applies to the peace offerings in the Old Testament. The other applies to the Lord's table in the New Testament. In the sacrificial system under the law of Moses, the sacrifices were divided into three major categories. There were a lot of subordinate offerings and, and subcategories, but there were three big categories of sacrifices. First was the sin and guilt offerings. Second, the whole burnt offerings. And third, the peace offerings. In the narrative of the consecration ceremony for the priests in the tabernacle in Leviticus 9, we get to see the actual procedural order of the sacrifices. The order in which this, these three big categories were always presented. Okay? That's the order. Sin and guilt offering first, then whole burnt offering, and then peace offerings. I've got to take just a second to mention that the guy that I learned this from was named Anson Rainey. He came and visited Dallas Seminary. He visited our, our Hebrew exegesis class. It was the most fascinating discussion I ever heard. He's a Jew 
who converted from, he was a Baptist growing up. He became a Jew. He never went back. And when he was telling us all this, he was telling us it from the perspective of a Jew. And what he laid out for us is the way of access to God through Jesus Christ. In the narrative of that, that ceremony, we have this order. The first category of sacrifices in the order presented was sin and guilt offerings. These were blood sacrifices presented as pictures of blood atonement provided by God to his people as payment for sins and conditions of uncleanness. Now I say provided by God to his people because God makes that exact point in Leviticus 17.11. That's a verse you need to know. Leviticus 17.11. God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, even I, the I is emphatic, I, even I, have given that blood to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. You haven't given it to me. See, Israel had this strange idea that they brought their animals to God and offered them up to God as a gift. And God said, no, the animal's mine in the first place. And the blood is mine. The life is mine. And I'm giving it to you. It's fundamental. The best part of each animal that served as a sin or guilt offering was laid on the altar to be consumed by God and then a designated portion of every sin and guilt offering was given by God back to the priests to consume as food, they and their families. The second category of offering in the order actually presented was the whole burnt offering. And there were versions of this that went on outside the context of this, this process, but there was actually a, a, a whole burnt offering offered up continually at the, ta at the temple. Morning and evening, it was the fire of that offering was going on all the time. But neither the priests nor the offerer received back any portion of this offering to consume as food. This offering was a picture of dedication of the, whole, of the offerer's whole self to God as a humble and grateful response for the atonement that God had provided in the sin and guilt offering in that blood sacrifice that he gave to them. So first came the sin and guilt offerings picturing the payment for sin by blood. Second came the whole burnt offering that pictured the offerer's dedication of self to God in response to that payment. And then and only then came the third category of offering known as the peace offerings. And there were some, some other subcategories like free will offerings and votive offerings, but they're all peace offerings. They're voluntary sacrifices. And they were the only sacrifices from which the offerer received back a portion of the animal to consume as food together with God and the priests and other offerers. The peace offerings, beloved, pictured a sit-down dinner between God and his people and the mediators of his covenant. These offerings were a picture of relationship restored and fellowship accomplished between God and his people. The peace offerings were the pinnacle of the Old Testament sacrifices. They were the celebration of shalom, of fellowship and well-being because of restored relationship with God accomplished. How that well-being was accomplished was pictured through the first two categories of sacrifices. When Dr. Rainey sat there in front of us, we were all... Brains are short-circuiting with this. It's like, 
what you're showing us is Christ. The punishment, listen to this, the punishment from God for treating the peace offerings as trivial or common was death. Leviticus 7.18 says, Any Israelite who waited more than two days to eat his portion from the offering would bear his own iniquity. Verse 20 of that same chapter says that any Israelite who ate his portion of the peace offering in a condition of uncleanness would be cut off from his people. And Exodus 31 equates being cut off from your people with being killed, losing your life. So the penalty for treating that sit-down dinner with God, that celebration of fellowship accomplished between God and His people as common, as trivial, was the death of the one who so treated it. I hope the powerful connection between the peace offerings and, and the Lord's Supper should be coming evident. Throughout the Bible, guys, dining together is the most vivid and visible expression of relationship, fellowship, of personal knowing and being known. It's a picture of what the Old Testament calls shalom. Shalom isn't merely the absence of enmity between God and men. Shalom is pervasive well-being in all aspects of life, the life of the people of God, because of well-being in their relationship with God. God created us for intimate, personal knowledge of Himself. And so unsurprisingly, He assigns very high value to the act of dining together with His people. And so should we. In the great shepherd psalm, uh, Psalm 23, David says to God, you prepare a table for me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The, the vivid and unexpected picture of God setting up a table on a battlefield in the middle of a raging battle and then sitting down with his beloved to have dinner declares the marvelous security and well-being that that God provides to His own. In Isaiah 25, that same Lord of Armies, I'm almost done here, that same Lord of Armies promises His people another sit-down dinner that is yet to come after the last battle has been won. Listen to these verses. This is extraordinary. Isaiah 25, verses 6-9. through nine. The, the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of Armies, will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of meat with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. And in the next verse, he tells us what that veil is. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears from all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And then listen to these last two. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. On the night of His arrest, when Jesus instituted the remembrance that we call the Lord's Supper with His disciples, He looked forward to the day of His glorious return to claim His bride, His church. He looked forward to that banquet that God talked about in Isaiah. He said, I say to you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine 
from now on until the day when I drink it with you and you and you new in my Father's kingdom. In Revelation 19, that beautiful meal is presented as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then He said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true words of God. Paul's impassioned appeal to us in 1 Corinthians 11 is to treat that which is sacred as sacred. You and I cannot be remembering Christ together with our fellow saints while we are distracted by the desires of the mind and of the flesh that once marked us out as condemned. There is, of course, no way that anyone's going to get drunk or be gluttonous with a fourth of a shot glass of juice and a tiny wafer of bread. But that does not mean that we get to pass over this forceful exhortation and warning as if it doesn't apply to us. The Christian life is to be filled daily with prayerful abiding in the love of God that was proven to us and forever secured for us at the cross of Christ. When we gather together here on Sunday, it is in order to humbly and soberly remember together with our fellow saints the indescribable gift of God to us in the person and in the completed atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Master. Dear Father, thank you for both the substance and the symbol of the Lord's table. Thank you for the tangible, tasteful reminder that we partake of together each week. The reminder of the pure and perfect sacrifice and of the life-giving blood that has brought all who trust in Jesus out of bondage to sin and delivered us together with all the saints into the kingdom and loving presence of your beloved Son forever. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.